Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is God's Word, and therefore we know we can trust it completely. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all of the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also here in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Well, you might want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be thinking about some of these verses uh, as we look at the gospel. John was mentioning about the trolleys coming up the aisles like uh, the airplane. Uh, I was reminded of the the story that hit the news just a couple of weeks ago of uh, somebody who had been going on a skiing holiday and uh, he'd had his knee out in the the aisle uh, of the airplane and a trolley had broken loose, I think, and hit it, and he'd hurt his knee, and he successfully claimed 11,000 pounds. He couldn't ski, and he he successfully claimed 11,000 pounds off the airline. So keep your knees in whenever the the tea and coffee is coming around later on, and for for goodness sake, you will not get 11,000 pounds out of us if somebody runs a trolley into you, okay? Well, we had uh, a couple of great evenings uh, this week. Uh, when the elders interviewed those who were considering coming into membership this year. We had 
about 30 conversations. We divided folk into groups. We, we heard what God had been doing in their lives, how they'd come to faith. They'd, they'd really, I suppose, shared their testimonies. And it was so encouraging to hear how God had drawn himself uh, to himself people in all sorts of different ways. And, and hopefully we're going to find some way of sharing some of those stories with a wider audience over uh, the coming days because they were uh, tremendously encouraging. And tremendously encouraging too to hear how people are plugging in here and, and, and why they're coming to Hill Street and so on and how they see themselves serving in the church family. One of the things that we had considered asking, one of the questions that we considered asking was, would you just take a moment and share what your understanding of the gospel is? Now, maybe if you were part of that conversation, you're really glad that we didn't do that. But it is a really important question nonetheless, isn't it? What do we understand this gospel that we talk about, that we sing about? What do we understand it to be? Imagine you were asked that question by a friend. Somebody said to you, I've heard Christians talk about this gospel. What is this gospel? What's it all about? What would you say? What sort of things would you feel you needed to include? John shared a story this morning about a minister who was speaking to a man near the end of his life, and he said that he shared the gospel with him. What do you think the highlights of that particular conversation were? What are its key elements? Well, that's what we want to think about for a moment or two this evening. If anything can be considered a foundation, then surely the gospel is uh, certainly that. Paul says in Romans 1, as we read, that uh, we are not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So it, its foundational status can hardly be overstated. But sometimes we've got to say that whenever people say, well, this is the gospel or that is the gospel, they really fall far short of what we would want to include as we describe the gospel. For example, people might say, the gospel is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or, or, or that Jesus died for you so that you can be forgiven or so that you can have a new start. don't know about you, I need more than one new start. Or so that I can have a personal relationship with God. And there may be elements of truth in, in, in all of those. But I think we would want to say that there's much, much more to the gospel. And especially before we get to those sorts of things, there's much more that we want to talk about whenever we talk about the gospel. The first thing we need to say is that the, the, the gospel is an announcement of good news. It is an announcement of good news. So, you picture the scene. You're, you're, you're living in a, in a city-state in the Mediterranean uh, in the ancient world, and, and, and your city-state is at war with another, another uh, land not far off. And your army has been gathered up and has gone off to fight their army. You know that this battle is going to happen in, in some plain between you and this other city. And you know, too, that the whole outcome of the city lies in the fortunes of this battle. If, if the enemy wins, you will at best become a slave. You may well have your life uh, put to an end. And so you're anxiously waiting with the rest of the city. You're anxiously waiting 
for news of how the battle has gone. No Twitter or, or Telegram or, or a, a news feeds like that in those days. So what happens is that a runner comes from the battlefield and he is spotted as he comes over the horizon and he, he runs as fast as he can. He comes right into the city square and, and he tries to catch his breath and he shouts out, good news. The word he uses is gospel. Good news. The battle has been won. The word that he uses to say good news is really this same word that we use for gospel. Because at its heart, the, the gospel is an announcement of good news. It's something that we should remember because there is and there should be an element of joy and celebration to the gospel. Rico Tice always emphasizes this when he talks about it. He, he says in the Christianity Explored course that if the gospel is not the best news you have ever heard, the best news you have ever heard, then he says you have not properly understood it. Now, I think that is quite a challenge to us whenever we think about it. Many of us have known the gospel for years. We have sung about it. We've talked about it. We have rested on it. Does it thrill our hearts in the sort of way that Rico is talking about? William Tyndale, the great Bible translator, uh, said this, uh, Evangelion, the, what we call this, the, the word for the gospel, is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. This is what the gospel is. Well, the question is, of course, what is the good news about? What is the content of of this good news, because content is all important. Without content, there is no good news. The runner who collapses after he, he, he runs from the battlefield and collapses in the town square shouts, good news, but his gospel has to have content, otherwise there is no good news. The, the content in his case is that the battle has been won, and, and that's all important. Now, the question is, what is the content of the Christian gospel? What, is, what are some of its essential elements? Well, we read from that first section of Romans earlier. Romans, you may know, is uh, perhaps seen as the book where the gospel is set out more, most clearly. Uh, Paul is writing to believers in Rome. He hopes to visit them. He's never been with them, but he hopes to visit them. And what many Bible scholars think he is doing, really, is, is sort of setting out his stall. He's saying, this is the gospel which I preach, on, on which the, the church is built. This is the, the manifesto with which I will come to you. We're coming into election season. We're going to get all those little uh, uh, junk mail things through the door box, party manifestos. Some of them you might read, some of them you might not. And, and, and the, the, they're setting out the stall. This is what the party believes. This is what the party stands on. And, and Romans, in many ways, is is Paul's gospel manifesto. And in this introduction to the book, in these first uh, 17 verses, he, he highlights many of the key aspects of this gospel. You see how often the word appears in this section, and it culminates in, in verses 16 and 17 in him saying that he is not ashamed of it because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, let's mention some things and I'm sure there are others, but some things that
that we might want to say are highlights and essential elements of the gospel. Some are short, some are longer, but we'll mention a few as we go through. First of all, the gospel is God's plan. The gospel is God's plan. You notice that in verse 1, the gospel is called the gospel of God. It is God's good news. And then in verse 2, he says, the gospel, depending on your translation, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, you see, the gospel is something that God has done. He is the one who has thought it up, as it were. He's the one who has brought it about. It finds its origin in him. It begins with him. And so, it is not accidental. And the fact that he has promised it beforehand, particularly talking here about beforehand as far as before Jesus is concerned, before Jesus arrives, before the cross, but the fact that it has been promised beforehand shows that this has been God's plan and purpose. This is what God is working towards. This is what He's doing. So, so if, we're, if we're wanting to communicate the gospel to people, or we're wanting to think about what it means for us, one of the places we might want to begin is by saying, it is God's plan. God's plan to gather a people for Himself it always has been. And that speaks into our world that, that, that increasingly sees itself as a place just affected by random forces. You almost get the impression that our, our world is, is, is like a boxer that's trying to get up after being punched again and again and again, and the referee hasn't quite got in to separate the fighters. And every time that the world tries to stand on its feet, something else hits it. And it's almost saying to itself, is there any point in getting up at all? I, I just do not know what's coming next. And yet, the gospel is God's plan. It is what He's been doing, what He has promised beforehand. Second thing we see is that the gospel is about Jesus. He is at the heart of the good news. Verse 3, the gospel, you see, concerning His Son. So, Jesus is the one that the gospel centers on. Now, later on in this book, Paul will go into great detail about what Jesus does, the effects of Jesus' atoning death and so on, his, his work, specifically his, his cross work. But, but here, you notice, in the introduction, Paul emphasizes who Jesus is, verses 3 and 4, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so Paul is saying, now, the gospel is about Jesus. Let's just be clear about who Jesus is. He is the one who is fully man. He's the descendant of David, but He's also the Son of God, because Paul knows and we know that this is the only way in which salvation is possible. Jesus had to be, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, a true and righteous man. Lovely phrase think about that as you think about Jesus. He had to be a, a true and righteous man. He had to be genuinely a man in order to pay for man's sin. And he also had to be a righteous man, otherwise he'd be paying for his own sin. But he also had to be God because only the, the divine nature is able to, to carry the wrath of God against sin. So, as Paul introduces the gospel, he says, it centers on Jesus, and this is who Jesus is. He's God and man. But as I said, in this book, in this wonderful letter of Romans, Paul spends most of his time really talking about what Jesus does. He talks about his work. 
talks about how Jesus pays for sin through His death on the cross. So, the cross was not just some sort of demonstration of the love of God. It, 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 it was that, but it was much more. Something actually happened there. Something took place there. Something changed there. The wrath of God against sin was carried by Jesus, born by Jesus, fell on Jesus, and sin was paid for. As Paul says later in chapter 3, verse 25, really important verse, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the NIV says, through the shedding of His blood. The, the word is in the ESV, propitiation, the old word that we don't hear that much today. It refers to the averting of wrath by the offering of a gift. So, Jesus is the gift. He's the sacrifice. He's the lamb, as we thought about this morning. And in His death on the cross, God's wrath is averted. Sin is paid for. So, the gospel centers on Jesus, who He is, His person, and what He does, His work. Now, we've said a fair little bit about the gospel so far, and, and you notice that, that so far there's a sense in which it hasn't got very much to do with us. Oh, it's, it's, it's coming to us, but so far it's very much what God has done. And this is where we often go wrong as we think about the gospel. We, we think about the wonderful plan for our lives bit, and we, we, we go there too quick. In fact, maybe it's the only place we go. And we tend to want to see everything in terms of how it relates to us. And sometimes whenever we intend to talk about the gospel, all we end up talking about is, well, e even at, at best, our testimony. This is what Jesus is for me. Now, don't get me wrong. A testimony is really important. It was, a, it was an absolute privilege to listen to people's stories uh, this week, but, and it can be incredibly impar a, a, a powerful. I think back to the story of the, the woman at the well and, and how she, she leaves Jesus and goes into the village, and she says to the village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And then they flock to Jesus, and many of them believe not only because of, of what happened, but because of the woman's testimony. Now, you know, however, that, that one of the things that happens today is that as we tell people about our experience, about what something means to us, people say, well, well that's okay for you. Hey, somebody might say to us, well, you know, it's just lovely that, that Jesus does it for you, but you know what? Uh, Buddhism does it for me, or, or Pilates, or, or, or golf. I remember not so long ago coming across a, a, an article in a magazine, one of the, the, the Saturday papers magazines, and, and it, it consisted of the stories of believers and how they had come to faith. There were about six of them, and they, they followed a fairly common uh, pattern. I, 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 they said something like, I was pretty unhappy with my life, and, and this was going wrong, and this was not good, and so on. And, and then I met so-and-so, and, -so, and they, they, they talked to me about God, and, and they, they answered the questions that I had, and they gave me something to read. They, they brought me along to their community, and, and, and I committed my life to God, and things have never been better. It's giving me meaning and purpose. The problem was those were not Christian testimonies. They were Muslim testimonies in one of our Saturday papers. These were believers in Islam, many of whom had come from a, a UK background, 
They were Muslim conversion stories. And in today's pluralistic world, if we just say, well, this is what Jesus means to me, we will hear, well, that's fine for you, but I will find my meaning in this other thing. And that's, when, that's why when we think about the gospel, all this stuff that God has done needs to be part of it. Its historical nature needs to be emphasized. The God who, who made everything, who made you and who made me, stepped into history in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He has done something. He has paid for sin. And so the world can never be the same again. Now, having said all that, having, having said that what God has done in history is incredibly important and crucial and a bedrock in all of this, it, it must nevertheless come to intersect with our lives. And that's what we, we see here as we move on. The gospel brings an offer or it has an offer. You see, Paul describes himself in verse 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And this, of course, is what Paul is. He is a preacher. He is an evangelist. He calls people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this good news about what God has done, how God has broken into our world and into our situation, is, is told to people. And Jesus, if you like, is, is offered to people. Come to him, Paul says. Submit to him. Believe in him. And so there is a response, you see, that is called for from people, that's sought from people. And it's not that they, they must do something and, and clean up their lives, as it were. It's, it's not by works. It's by, it's by faith they are to believe in him, believe in what he has done on their behalf. So the gospel has an offer, an intersection with our lives. And in the gospel, you see, has a result. It brings a result. It's Paul's punchline, really, in this introduction you see in verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from, by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Some of those later phrases have been notoriously hard to translate, but this idea of the righteousness of God is clearly key. And, and I've probably told you before of, of how these verses have affected people in the past. Uh, Martin Luther, particularly, he was tormented by the idea, when he was a monk in the monastery, tormented by the idea of the righteousness of God. He, he considered it, as, as it sometimes does, referring to the, the perfect standard that God is in and of himself. And so, Martin Luther just saw that as a an incredibly intimidating truth. Here is, is God. He is perfect and pure and, and righteous. And what Luther took from that was, here is the standard that you must reach. Here is the God that you must clean yourself up for sufficiently that you might stand in front of Him. And so, as a monk, he gave himself to that task of effectively self-salvation, cleaning himself up. He, he confessed his sins more than any of the other monks. 
He, he did works of penance, like climbing up the stairs of the monastery on his knees. And, and, and as he said later, if anyone could be saved by monkishness, it's great when people make up words, isn't it? If anyone could be saved by monkishness, he was that monk. And then he understood that, that the righteousness of God here was not what God required, as it were, first of all, but actually what he granted through faith in Jesus. God gives us a right standing. It's a marvelous gift. So that for the believer, I, I remember coming to understand this in my days as a student in Aberdeen, and I only understood it a little bit, I'm sure. But I thought, this is, this is remarkable. I'd, I'd grown up in a Christian home and, 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 and through a church and, 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 underst- and, and felt that, that, that when, when God looked at me, he, he, he saw me as somehow in the scales. What sort of day have you had today? Well, it's not been great. Down a bit here, up a little bit there. But you see, what this tells us is that for the believer, when God looks at us, he sees us as being in the right. I remember Mr. Still talking about him seeing us through the lens of Jesus so that we're clothed in the, in the righteousness of Christ, our sin washed away, the perfect record of Christ appearing in our place so that when God looks at us, he sees us as, as Mr. Still said, as little Jesuses. So you imagine all sorts of illustrations that none of them really do justice. But imagine you, you get yourself into dreadful debt and you finally pluck up the courage to go to Santander. And you declare yourself. You're going to walk in and speak to the manager and declare yourself to be bankrupt. And the manager says, come through to my office. And you think, okay. Let me just pull up your account. You've been there? You've done this? And he presses some keys And he says, oh, Mr. McCulloch, interestingly, not only has your debt been wiped out, but somehow all of Bill Gates' money has been put into your account. Well, everything changes at that point, doesn't it? You're straight off to the cozy uh, to get lots of buns and so on. And you you see, this is how it is with with, with God, but it's it's not like Monopoly. It's not like a bank favor in your error. No, it's not like a bank error in your favor. You see, Jesus has taken our debt willingly, and willingly then, his perfect record has been handed over to us. You see, the gospel brings a result. John said earlier about whether our lives had gone well this week or whether our Christian service had been successful or unsuccessful. And you see, these things are true of us. No matter what our performance has been like, doesn't mean that we ought not to strive to please the Lord. Of course we should. But we do it from this position of infinite acceptance in the gospel. The gospel brings a result. Now, in the past, in the membership class, we've, we've used, we didn't do it this year, but we've used a short video clip 
we'll maybe try and throw it up on social media later on, but we've used a short video clip of John Piper talking about what the gospel is, and it's just a three, four minute clip, and he makes these points. He says that the gospel is a plan, it is an event, it is an achievement, it is an offer, it brings an application, and you can see that, that these things have been very much in my head as I've been looking at Romans chapter one. But he adds a last emphasis, which is very Piper, but very helpful nonetheless, and that is that the purpose of the gospel is to bring us to God. He quotes 1 Peter 3.18. This is what it says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Why did Jesus go through what he went through on the cross? All sorts of ways of answering that question. But 1 Peter 3.18 answers that question by saying he did it in order to bring you to God. You see, if we just say that the purpose of salvation, the purpose of the gospel, is to deliver me from guilt, or to get me into heaven, or to bring me forgiveness, those things are all wonderful, but they all fall short of this. The goal of what Jesus did is to bring me to God. He is the goal. And so the Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's to bring us to Him. And you see, sin has so affected us as believers that there's a part of us that finds that hard to believe and hard to rest on. And so whenever we think about heaven, we think about the future. What do we think about? Well, sometimes we, 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 th we think about the wonderful things that will be there. Sometimes we think about the people who will be there. And sometimes we think about God almost on the side. So it might be that we think about heaven and we, we think about being reunited with friends or family. And that becomes important as we get older, doesn't it? As we journey through our lives and we, we lose people. We lose people that we treasure. So many goodbyes, aren't there? They're heartbreaking. Those who've gone before us are precious. We, we miss them terribly. We look forward to being reunited with believers who've gone on ahead of us to glory. But it's not the main thing about salvation. Or, or maybe we think about there being no more pain or, or suffering and no more tears. And those verses from Revelation become incredibly precious to us. And maybe when our lives are hard or tough and maybe they're marked by pain and tears, th then that becomes a really central part of our hope. But you know what? It's not the main idea either. And, and Peter underlines it. The central purpose of our salvation is that we are brought to God. He's the goal of our salvation. He's the goal of the gospel. He, he is the one when we see him, then all else will be seen for the secondary thing that it is. And in his nearer presence, nothing else will eclipse that. And we'll realize that that this always was, He always was the source of our joy. He was the center of our hope. If only we'd seen it sooner.
So we don't confuse, you see, the, the benefits of salvation, of which there are so many, with the point of salvation. Again, there are all sorts of illustrations, aren't there? You imagine the, well, Disney are making different sorts of films these days, aren't they? But you remember the old Disney movies, you know, the, the, the poor girl who, who meets the prince and she falls in love and it turns out that he is a prince. She didn't know it at the time. And the shoe fits and the glass slipper slips on and all of these things. And, and, and she goes to live in the most wonderful castle and the most beautiful parkland estate and, and they, they, they marry and, 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 and she, she, she's there and, and she doesn't say, oh, oh, I'm now so happy because I have a pool and a fountain and an estate and a castle. She says, I'm so happy because I'm with you. She enjoys the pool and the fountain and the castle, but they are the benefit of her new status, not the focus of it. The focus is the prince, you see. And so it is with us. Christ died to bring you to God. So if we were asked to explain the gospel, would these be some of the things that we would at least want to get across? It's God's plan. It's about Jesus, the God-man who pays for sin on the cross. It brings an offer to rebellious people like you and me, calls them, calls us to turn to Him, to repent and believe. It brings a result, making us right with God, and it brings us to by all means, make sure we have the constituent elements of it in our minds. But even more than that, let the wonder of it shape your life. Do you notice that, that, that Paul writes to these Romans? He writes to Christians. And he says, I really desire to preach the gospel to you. He's not saying, I, I desire to come and make your church the base from which I will preach the gospel to others. He, he does that without question. But I desire to preach the gospel to you. To you who have already benefited from it. To you who, are, who already rest in it and stand in it. Why? Because Paul knows that, that we need to be reminded of these things again. We, we need to stand in these things afresh. We, we need to come in all of the, the condemnation of our lives and say, what God has done for me, I cannot but thank Him for. And you see, if you not only remind yourselves of the truths of the gospel, but you're filled with such an appreciation of the God of the gospel that this good and merry and glad and joyful news begins to grab your heart, then the world will notice. And truly, they will, we trust, come to notice the God of the gospel. 